Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I'm Evan. And I'm Aaron. And this is a podcast where we read through the Bible together every year and talk about what we learned along the way. If you'd like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and look up the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington. You can find our plan there. You can also look up our plan on our website, grove.church. And finally, if you are jumping in today, we are on day 344. Wow. That means three weeks and we are done. It's crazy. With this year's reading plan, which is crazy to consider. But as you're listening, don't forget to to send in those questions. We're coming down to the end of the year. So get those questions in quickly so that way we can try and take time every week for the remainder of the year to answer those questions. There's three ways to send us those questions. One is an email. The email address is infogrove.church. Make sure to put in the subject line a podcast question. Or you can direct message the the Grove Church Facebook page or the Instagram handle or page, if you will. And you can do that with the handle of the Grove CH. Uh, We are uh, anticipating all of those questions coming to the end of the year. It's crazy to think that we were talking about it before we started up the podcast today, but we are in the last three episodes of the year. And if all goes according to well, uh, all goes according to plan. If uh, as long as nothing catastrophic happens, this will be the first year that we've done 52 episodes in 52 weeks. No breaks. No. Well, I guess for for being splitting hairs. The podcast has had 52 episodes, hopefully. That's true. Not we have, because I haven't been at every one, just like you heard last week. And Evan hasn't been at either, every one, just like you heard that one week, where it's just my voice. It's just a good time. So, Big yeah. jerk. That's fair. What are you going to do? Just kidding. Uh, but we are in Epistle-Palooza for now. We'll be this week and next week, I'm assuming. And then I would think the week after that, we're- Oh, yeah. Epistles, yeah. Yeah. We're, and then we're going- Revelations. We finish up Paul's epistles this week. And then we jump into the final epistles yeah. next week. And then Revelation I actually starts after Christmas. After oh so it's the whole week then interesting yep. so the last week the last five days or whatever I think is all Revelation and stay then we end the year New Year's Eve we end stay tuned for the most complicated book of the Bible to interpret <laughs> that'll be our last episode of the year all right well we're gonna like Aaron said we're finishing up Paul's letters this week so we're gonna start off I'm gonna do a few of them Aaron's gonna do a few of them. Uh, the first one we have is Philemon. Uh, Philemon appears to be a core member of the church in Colossae. So he's wealthy enough that the church meets in his home. So this means that he has a home large enough to accommodate. We don't know how large the, the church was, or at least how, how big the section of the church that in his home was, but at least large enough that, you know, you're not, you're not meeting with like three people. So he has a pretty sizable home. Uh, and so this letter was probably delivered at the same time as the book of Colossians or the letter to the Colossians. So what most likely happened is Paul sent it along, probably with Onesimus, actually. There's one letter that's to the church, and it's meant to be read out loud as a letter from Paul to the church. And there's one letter specifically to Philemon. And this is the one we get. And I love I love the personal letters of Paul because it gives us it gives us a really interesting look into the the character of the man. Because he's not talking to a church, he's not talking in kind of generalities. He's talking specifically about an issue that is arising within the within the the lives of those people. So this one's to Philemon, and then the other letters we're going to read today are two letters to Timothy and one letter to Titus, and those are letters specifically to pastors as well. So cool beans. Uh, so Paul has become friends with a runaway slave named Onesimus. Uh, this slave legally belongs to Philemon. So Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon with this letter asking for his freedom. Uh, and I love that Paul doesn't really mess around <laughs> with this. So as, as you read the letter and we'll talk about it, Paul is pretty aggressive with his, uh, with his desire to have Onesimus set free and then come back to him to continue to help him in ministry. And, and here's what I mean. So this is in verses eight through 22. And Philemon's a really short book. It's only one chapter. 
So I'm just going to read the bulk of it here. Uh, He says, accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner, also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending you my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but by your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but as more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in flesh and in the Lord? So consider me your partner. Receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of you owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through prayers, I will be graciously given to you. So there you go. There's a few different aspects of that letter that always stick out to me. The first one would be, he says, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required for your, for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. So basically Paul is saying, I could very easily say, I command this as an apostle, but he's like, no, I'm, I'm asking you to do this. Uh, but he's not afraid to let him know that he could command it if he wanted to. And then the idea of if, so Onesimus, we don't know if he stole anything. We don't know. The, the, the only wrong that we know was committed was running away in that moment, as far, as far as like a legal wrong that was committed against Philemon. And I love that Paul says, charge it to my account. I'll pay it back. Even though you owe your salvation to me, remember, and you can kind of get the idea that Paul is saying, I preach the gospel, you're saved. Uh, you're, I, I'm the reason, I shouldn't say that that's kind of probably taking it a step too far, but Paul revealing the gospel of Christ to Philemon is the reason that Philemon is saved. And so Paul is even saying here, um, I, I want something back from you. This is this is what I want back. And he's not afraid to say it. And so I love the way that Paul says it. And then finally, one of my favorite lines in Philemon is that you might have, have him back forever, not as a bondservant, but as more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Uh, so in other words, and we don't know where Philemon's head was at, but we, we can probably guess that his head was that, hey, this is my slave and I need him back. And Paul's saying, there's something even greater than that. Uh, it's not having him back as a slave, it's having him back as a brother in Christ. And wouldn't you rather have the kingdom of God furthered in a much greater way than simply having a slave back in your home? So yes, that's, that's kind of the idea. Yes. Uh, I don't know. Hopefully he said yes. We don't know. If <laughs> I, we don't know if I layman's answer, but I, I, I would, I would assume that Paul's writing pretty forcefully here. I'm assuming that he's, that he's, he's granting this request. And it's a, it's a beautiful picture of, I think one of the hard things to read in the Bible for us today, and there's there, every culture has things in the Bible that are harder to read than than other cultures because you know the, if the Bible is true and it's God's message of repentance to all cultures, then of course all cultures are going to find the other things that are going to be really hard to read within within Scripture. Uh, one of the things that's hard to read in the modern West is the is the idea of slavery, and particularly in you know I shouldn't say in particularly, but in the New Testament. 
Uh, one of the things I tell people to kind of encourage them is keep in mind that these letters are not about the good or evil of the political systems of the time. They're about how to live as Christians within yeah. these political systems. Because uh, the other thing I bring up, and we don't talk about it, but in, in none of his letters does Paul say, hey, let's overthrow the government of Rome so that we're not persecuted anymore and they're not just rounding up and killing Christians, right? Like, And that, that would have been... Uh, a just war to be fought, right? Like the idea of, hey, like, let's not, this is not right. We shouldn't allow it to happen. But what does Paul write about? He says, submit to authority uh, as in so much as it relies on you, live in peace with other people. So Paul's not saying, Paul's not giving revolution. He's giving in this world as Christians, here's how you live. Um, and I love that essentially the, the the end of slavery was through the application of Christian principles, yeah. the idea that we're all created in the image of God, the idea that we're all equal before um, the Lord. And if you, I, I love William Wilberforce is one of my personal heroes. And uh, if you don't know who that is, he's one of the uh, the main pe- the main people in Britain who led to the the end of the slave trade and then eventually the end of slavery as well. And he died like four days after slavery ended, I believe. So it's kind of literally, it was basically his life's work. Um, But if you read him, it's impossible to come away thinking anything other than he's applying the lessons of Christ into into those moments. So really cool. Yeah. And I think even in in that same vein of thought, like Paul, Paul's concern was not the present situations or circumstances. And I think that's, that's where we wrestle with, if we're being honest, that's where we wrestle with the gospel colliding with our everyday life is we expect and desire and want God to make our life easy now right? and convenient now. Paul, Paul, do I think Paul cared about? No, I think Paul wanted an easy life, but he understood that eternity and what is the hope we cling to is far greater than any hope we can have this side of eternity. And, and so I think that sometimes is the paradigm shift. And we talked about it multiple times this year on the podcast, the idea of like, we have to live better with the end in mind with what is awaiting for us in eternity mm-hmm. rather than what's awaiting for us just around the, the river bend, so to speak. So well, we're putting Pocahontas in my Dude, head, throw man. it out, bro. Listen, uh, you do Lord of the Rings, I do random movie quotes. That's so. fair. Anyway, so I, just, I think that's part of the the ongoing challenge of reading the gospels and reading the epistles and reading the words of Paul, why he can be so forceful of to Onesimus saying, hey, listen, there's a far greater reality that you and I both are clinging to that this side of eternity doesn't matter. So let him be free. Let him receive him as a brother, not as a slave, which I, it's, that's part of it. Right. I'm going to put a pin in that because the next letter that we're going to talk about, Paul expounds on that theme that Aaron just brought up. So we'll, we'll, get, we'll get there in a second. Uh, I call that a segue, but segue. I wasn't planning that. Well, the, I guess the last thing I have to, because I, I have to say this, at the end of his letter, Paul lets uh, Philemon know that Epaphras, Mark, Aristarchus, Emus, and Luke say hi. So hi. Those, are, <laughs> those are some of my favorite parts of the letters just because, um, A, it's fun to see especially in the chronological plan, the ebbs and flows of, because this is our best guess about what letters, what order the letters were written in. So kind of the ebbs and flows of who's with Paul, who leaves at different points, all this different stuff. Um, and I'd also, it's a reminder that these are not made up books. <laughs> like these are, these are real letters because these are things that, these are not things that you include in, um, in fake letters. And you can read the fake the fake epistles, you can read fake gospels, all those different things. And you can see, like if you just read, like I was talking with um uh, with my dad the other day. And I was saying like, someone brought up, oh, it was in a discipleship class that we, t- me and Aaron taught together, but someone brought up, you know, how do you know that 
the other gospels aren't the true ones. And my answer is always just, just read them. <laughs> like, don't be afraid. Just read them. Cause like, you'll get like a couple pages in and you'll be like, wow, this is really, this is really nuts. Like this has nothing to do with anything else that we hear about Jesus. And so it becomes very obvious uh, the philosophies that they're, they're trying to put forward in that in the same way. Uh, when we read these sections at the end of letters where Paul is saying, you know, here's all the people I'm with. They, they love you. They all say hi. It, it lets us know this is a real letter written by a real person. Uh, also, notice that Mark is back. And we talked about that a few weeks ago in Acts, that when Mark and Paul separate, eventually they repair. It's one of those weird – I think it's a really beautiful picture of a friendship being repaired over time. And it's weird because it happens in the background because Paul – like we, we never get a scene of them making up or like hugging or whatever it is. We just see all of a sudden Mark starts appearing at the end of Paul's letters again. So – they, they begin working together again. So really cool. Uh, so next up, we are going into Philippians, which is, that's the letter I was talking about where we're going to discuss that theme a little bit more. Uh, this is a letter written by, that Paul writes to the church at Philippi. Uh, and the vibe of this letter is interesting because Paul isn't really correcting them for much. In most of the letters, what happens? It's Paul saying, hey, you're doing this wrong. I, I've heard about this sin that you're all engaging in. Uh, stop it is kind of the idea. Uh, and Philippians, Paul is just saying, hey, thanks for thanks for your concern, guys. I love you. You're awesome. Here's some encouragement. And then that's kind of it. Uh, and so apparently they reached out while he was imprisoned in Rome and he is writing to let them know that he's doing okay. It's kind of, that's kind of the tone of the letter, really. They're, they're concerned. They reach out and Paul's like, hey, I'm doing fine. Uh, and I, I love his tone throughout. This is in chapter one, verses eight through 11. Paul says, for God is my witness, how I yearn for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and the praise of God. And so as, as Paul continues, he lets the church know that he is doing everything he can to advance the gospel forward. Uh, he's happy to see so many people preaching Christ and even those who do it for poor motives, at least get, they get the word out. And this is a really weird thing that Paul says is the idea of, um, the idea that even people who preach Christ for bad motives, you know, at least they're getting the word out there is kind of what Paul says. So it's, it's a really interesting, we don't really see that too many other places in the Bible, but Paul's, Paul's just happy with the gospel being preached. Uh, closing out chapter one, Paul shares his famous refrain that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Uh, and it's a wonderful testament to where Paul's at in this moment and how his top priority is to always see what more can be done or just to go home and be with Jesus. And so that's kind of what Aaron was bringing up, right? That perspective of, are we living with the end in mind, all these different things. Uh, Paul's saying, uh, yeah, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know when I'm going to die. If I live, that's great because I get to continue the work of Christ. If I die, that's great. It means I get to go spend eternity with God. So Paul's literally like, whatever happens, I'm great. I'm great. This is awesome. And it's kind of a weird, it's almost a weird letter to get if you're the Philippian church, but it's an encouraging one as well. But essentially Paul's saying, yeah, whether I live or die, it's going to be great. You know, don't worry about it. So that's a cool thing. Uh, closing out chapter one, Paul shares his faith. Oh, sorry. That's, I just read that. Moving into chapter two. What an idiot reading over my notes. What are you new? Oh, uh, moving into chapter two, Paul shifts his focus to how we should always strive to follow in Christ's example, particularly his humility. And I, I just think about this for a moment. I, I love this picture of how humble Christ is. Uh, let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So there's, there's the application point ahead of time, right? It's don't just be selfish, selflessly love others. Why should we do this? 
And here's what here's why in verse five. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by the taking by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed him the, on, on him the name that is above every name, so that every so that the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, and in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so Paul brings up a really good point. The reason we should selflessly love others is because no one demonstrated this more than Jesus in the way that Christ selflessly loves us. Like Jesus had every right to not be incarnate at all, right? But even if he came as as a man, he he humbled himself to the point of think about we're we're coming into the Christmas story right now. We're coming into the we're not coming in. We're in the middle of the Christmas season right now. Uh, think about just how incredible it is that. God in the flesh humbled himself to be born the way that he was born in a manger to a poor family. Uh, And then he humbled himself to being crucified, one of the most gruesome and humiliating deaths that you, that you could, that you could die in the Roman empire. And God did that to serve us because he loves us. Like, it's a really cool thing. Um, As Paul continues in chapter two, he encourages the Philippian church to be an example and light to the world. And so the way that they should act should attract people to Christ, which I think is a really good point. He's saying, (laughs) essentially, love each other, be selfless. Uh, The way that you live your lives, people in the in the in Philippi should look at that and and realize something's different about them. Uh, He then takes a sidebar. And I love, again, speaking of sections that just remind you that this is a real letter written by a real person. He takes a sidebar to let them know that he'll be sending Timothy in at some point to check in on them. Uh, And then he also lets them know that Epaphroditus will be coming soon. Uh, He was sick nearly to the point of death. So he he almost died. And then Paul says that God had mercy on him. Uh, So the church was really concerned because all they had heard is that he was deathly ill. And so Paul lets them know that, hey, Epaphroditus is doing okay. And uh, he's going to try and make it out to you guys as well to see you. So... Again, I, it's just sections of the letter that let you know this is totally. real, real communication. Uh, the final main point that Paul wants to make is to remind the church to rejoice in the Lord always and guard against false teaching. And I love the way that Paul lays it out. So this is in uh, chapter three, starting in verse three. For we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever I gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. So the idea here is, again, Paul is saying he has every right to brag in who he is. He has every right. If you're, if we're following the old covenant, there is no one who followed it better than Paul. And yet all of that is rubbish or trash is a way that we could translate it into our, uh, into our modern parlance. It's all trash compared to knowing Christ, which, and I, I just think that's one of the most powerful verses in scripture is, is Paul saying, I count it all as loss for the sake of Christ. 
Uh, Paul then tells us the church to strive for the goal, always keeping this in mind. Uh, we don't strive to be Christ-like to earn his salvation. We strive to be like him because he he earned our salvation. And that's my paraphrase of it, but that's kind of the idea. Uh, finally, Paul wraps up by reminding the church to once again rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice is the, the way that he says it. And then to strive and think on godly things. And this is where we get the famous, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is desirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Uh, and then we get finally uh, this, this verse that is taken out of context on the reg, uh, but this is Philippians 4, 11 through 13. It says, now that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. And in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need, for I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Uh, that verse is, is Paul talking about how he's had a lot of money. He's had not very much money. He's gone undergone intense per persecution, but God has empowered him for ministry. Um, so, and a lot of times that verse kind of gets boiled down to just mean like, I can do everything, which is, that's not what Paul's trying to say there. Wait, what? <laughs> so, uh, You yeah. just ruined my faith. No, I'm just kidding. What are you going to do? Uh, and then Paul ends his letter. This is disappointing. He just ends it with the generic, everyone's, <laughs> everyone says hi. So no names. It's just, hey, everyone I'm with, they say hi and they, they love you. So there you go. All right. Well, this is our first, we're moving on. Uh, this is our first letter not written by Paul. That we're going over. We're going back to Paul. This is crazy. I know. It's Paul wrote Paul wrote a, lo a lot of letters. So uh and none of the other letters are to cities or anything that we know of. It's just kind of like they're just named after the person. So Paul's letters are all named after who they're to. But James is the letter that we're about to jump into. Uh, and that's just named after James. Uh and so it is uh, it's written by, you know, spoilers, it's written by James. Wait, what? Uh, and this is a pro pretty common name in the Bible. So to clarify, this is not either of the disciples named James. Um, at least one of them is dead by this point. So he'd have a hard Sad. time writing this letter. Uh, this is James, the brother of Jesus. And you may remember we met him in Acts. He is the one who is over that council where they decide that the Gentile Christians do not have to follow the old covenant as well. So James is the one who's over that. Uh, yeah, he's the, he's the brother of Christ. And it seems like he kind of takes on the leadership of the Jerusalem church. So while most of the 12 disciples are doing what we would call missionary work is kind of their, it's kind of their deal. They're going around, they're spreading the gospel. Uh, James is overseeing the church that is in Jerusalem, which obviously at, at this point in history is the most influential of the groups of believers eventually uh, that is going to change, particularly after AD uh -oh. 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed. But before that Wait, as well. Wait, what? That doesn't happen. I know. Uh, the church in Jerusalem was undergoing some intense persecution. So it, it honestly kind of changes before that. because, And this mm -hmm. is why James is writing to, uh, specifically, he's writing to Jewish believers who have been scattered. Uh, he calls it the dispersion. So there's uh, there's definitely some intense persecution that's happening. Some of the Jewish believers have had to leave Jerusalem and go to other places. And so James is writing a letter to encourage all of them. Uh, the book of James is some kind, sometimes called the Proverbs of the New Testament because they're a bunch of loosely connected ideas one after the other. Um, they're not as loosely connected as Proverbs. Like you can definitely find the through line for all of it. Like you can see how one thought leads to the other. Whereas Proverbs, it literally is just a connection of a connection, a collection of disconnected pieces of wisdom. Um, and I love Proverbs for that because it's the one book of the Bible where you can actually just take a verse completely out of context and not get into trouble. For the most part, there's some chapters where that's not the case. Uh, so the first thought 
that James gets into is that suffering should be counted as joy. Since it is a proving ground for our faith, God can use our suffering to strengthen our relationship with him. Uh, And keep in mind who James is writing this to. He's writing this to people who have undergone such intense persecution that they've had to leave their, their, their homes. They've had to leave all of that behind. And so it's easy for us to say in the modern American church, where for the most part, our persecution looks like people kind of being mean to us, um, it's easy to say, count it all joy. What James is saying is, hey, this is life-changing persecution that you've undergone. Count it all joy because God is going to use it to strengthen your faith. So really cool moment there. Uh, in the midst of undergoing suffering, sufferings and trials, we can allow ourselves to be angry with God, even susceptible to sin. That's kind of the next thing that James brings up. So we need to guard our hearts all the more when we are undergoing uh, undergoing trials and tribulations. And then he un- encourages believers with this important point. He says, know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. I feel personally attacked by that. Reminder. Absolutely. If, uh, if you don't feel attacked or offended or angry at reading, and I say that righteously, right? But if you read the book of James and you're not like deeply convicted and challenged every time you read it, then I would challenge you to revisit yeah, the book of James. If there's, if there's nothing in James that is a convicting thought for you, you've either achieved a level of sinlessness that most of us cannot dream of, or you're not paying attention very well. So that's, that's probably what's happening. There. Shots fired. Um, it is a very convicting and challenging book. And even at the Grove Church recently, we even went through a series of, on James. So it's right. been, so it's almost kind of, for us, it feels a little bit repetitive because we've just went through the series, but it is a very challenging book. So yeah, if you want more, go to, uh, me, on, on our website, grove.church, go under media, then go to previous messages. It's one of our resources. Because this is not the only resource of the Grove Church, Exa- if you didn't know that. Exactly. If you don't listen to the end of the podcast when I do my, my ending <coughs> spiel. Excuse me. First off, shame on you if you don't. I work how very hard. Rude. I work very how, how rude. Oh, man. So the next verse is, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if any man is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks instantly at his natural face in the mirror for he looks at himself. Oh, sorry. Intently at his natural face in the mirror for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit widows and orphans in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Um, If you want to know more about this passage, this is the one I spoke on in James. (laughs) So you can go to, I think it's James part two or whatever it was. So... um, but it's one, it's, it's a really important, I, I love the way all these thoughts connect because, and the mere thing never made sense to me. It's, this is one of the things I loved about being able to study it is essentially what he's saying is that the law is like a mirror. It's uh, looking into the law of God is, is having our sin revealed to us. And it would be the same thing if we looked into a mirror and we saw things that were wrong and we need to correct them and we never did it. That's like seeing the law, seeing things that we are doing wrong and never correcting them. That's what it's like. Uh, moving into chapter two, James remind us that reminds us that the uh, sorry reminds the believers that they must also not show partiality to anyone. Uh, the example he uses is of treating a rich man in a church better than the poor man. Uh, we must sh- when we show partiality, we are breaking Christ's commandment to love our neighbors as ourselves. So in other words, regardless of the resources people have, regardless of anything else, we should not be partial to one person over the other. We're all equally sinners and we're all equally looking for Christ. Uh, James' next point is that faith without works is dead. 
Or in other words, if we say we have faith, but nothing in our lives shows that we are Christians, that's probably a pretty good idea that we're, or pretty good evidence that we're not actually Christians, right? So we, you, you can't have faith without works. And this is a, this is a hard one because it's, it's not saying that we are saved by works. It's not saying that we earn our salvation through good works. It's saying that if you all you say is that you have faith, it's probably evidence that you don't even have that if there's nothing to back it up. Um, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you should be able to look back on your life before you became a Christian and your life now, and you should be able to see growth. And even you should be able to look back as a Christian the whole time. Uh, you should see how the Holy Spirit is shaping you to become more and more like Christ. And if that's not happening, uh, yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> so next up in chapter three, James hones in on the idea of taming the tongue uh, or being intentional with what we say with a particularly scary warning to me and Aaron. It starts off False. with- <laughs> Wait, uh, you're right. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that what that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a force is set ablaze by such a small fire. So basically it's watch what we say, particularly if you're teaching the word, then you need to be extra careful with what you say, which which makes a ton of sense. Um, but I, I, yeah, the analogies he uses is great. Like the ship's rudders, like the whole big ship is contained is controlled by just a small little flap in the back. Um, the bits that control a horse flap in the back, flap in the back, flap in the stern. Most rudders are in the water. Well, uh, yeah, sorry, sorry, in the water, but they're in the back of the ship. Okay, so, yeah. but you said flap in the back, which makes it sound like, anyways, does it? Oh no, like a little, you know, a little like a. I mean, I guess they're pretty big with big ships too, but like- Well, but they're small in comparison to the size of the ship. Right, exactly. A metal, a metal. I don't know what you'd call that, a flat. flat it's a rudder. Yeah. It's a, it's a rudder. I guess that's true. But yeah, I'm trying to describe- What if someone doesn't know what a rudder is, Aaron? I'm trying to describe it for them. I'm trying to By saying a, a flap picture. in the back? It's a flap in the back. Yeah. Anyway. My suit coat has a <laughs> flap in the back. That's not a rudder. Oh, I see what's happened. I see what, okay. We're, we're thinking of different things when I say flap. Yeah. That, it doesn't make sense. Flap with the sail, like that's cloth. It's not. Gotcha. A rudder funny. is a rudder is a rudder. It's a rudder uh, or a bit, which is just that little thing that chomps into the horse that you can move it around or perhaps the it's best the bar one. that goes in the horse's mouth Yeah, exactly. and it has rope on either side. So you can turn the direction of a horse or maybe the easiest example to, uh, to see is just a, rudder. A, just a, a spark that starts a forest fire. Our tongue is like that, where it's this very small thing, but all of a sudden, if we don't watch what we say, it can just set our world on fire. Uh, James then reminds the believers that they should seek the wisdom from God above, not demonic wisdom. And it's interesting how he juxtaposes the two. He says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Uh, so basically, how should we act? We should be pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, uh, impartial, sincere, sincere, uh, doing good works. Where how shouldn't we act? Jealousy and ambition, disorder, vile practice. That's kind of the idea. Uh, continuing with that thought. James shows how fights arise within the church due to demonic or worldly wisdom. 
And he reminds the church that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So we should strive to live in humility, just like Christ did. <laughs> no one demonstrated humility more than Christ. Uh, and he encourages them to draw near to God and that if they do so, he will draw near to them. Uh, after this, the thought shifts to the idea of boasting about tomorrow. James warns that we must submit ourselves to God, God's will for our lives, not our own plans. So essentially, don't go around just planning necessarily. And this isn't to say don't make smart plans for the future, but don't trust in your own planning uh, and strive to do God's will for your life. Don't strive to do what we would want to do with our lives. Uh, and then finally, we get to Aaron's favorite passage in James. This is James chapter five, starting in verse one. It's literally uh, embroidered on a pillow on my couch right now. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and the corrosion will be evidence against you and will be uh, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in these last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which keep you back by fraud, are crying out against you and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Uh, and so this whole passage is talking about how and this is uh, this is a refrain we see all throughout the Bible is we can never let money master us and that's a very important thing for us to learn. We should never be mastered by money. Um we shouldn't be so concerned with material wealth and material gain that we don't devote our, that our top priority is not the kingdom of God. So in other words, if you have wealth, are you being generous with that? Are are you figuring out how can my wealth be used in order to further the kingdom of God? Or are we being like the people here in James chapter five, who are living in luxury and self-indulgence uh, and in, in doing so have fattened their hearts for a day of slaughter. So yeah, kind of a scary, scary way that James is putting it there yep. for sure. Um, and if you don't know, sorry, I guess that's kind of an inside joke that when I say it's Aaron's favorite, it's because the first message he spoke as, here at the Grove Church, as well, I shouldn't say the first. The first message he spoke to uh, adults. The adults, yeah. So not, he, when he was the youth pastor, he got this verse was the one that he had to do. So we did a series on James back then, and I got to speak on this passage. Yeah, we've done two series on James. There you go, craziness. <coughs> uh, so James ends his letter with a reminder to remain patient in the midst of their suffering, and we should be praying our always be preparing our hearts to meet the Lord regardless of circumstances. And the last one, I just this is just this is probably the most Proverbsy section of James, but it's just some practical advice. Uh, it says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. If anyone is anyone cheerful, let him sing praise. Uh, if anyone is among you and sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of, the right, of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. For three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that who, whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins." Ah, good deal. So there's James's letter to, uh, I guess I was about to say the church at blank, but that's not actually true. There's James's letter to scattered Jewish Christians. Uh, and the final letter I'm going to talk about today is First Timothy. So this is uh, this is a very special relationship that Paul has. Uh, we've seen Timothy mentioned quite a few times, and he is. Timothy and Paul have basically a father son relationship, kind of a spiritual father and son. Uh, I, it's almost kind of. 
It's it's similar, I guess, in a way to Jesus and John. Um, obviously, Paul's not Jesus, but you see that kind of relationship where Paul has an especially close friendship with Timothy. And so, and I love the letters of Timothy because they're basically just letters from an old man giving his spiritual son pastorly advice about how to handle different situations. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's really, there's a book I read years ago called Letters to a Young Pastor, which it kind of reminds me of, where it's just a it's a pastor in his 80s just writing to young pastors, giving them advice. It's kind of like what Paul's doing here, uh, except this is scripture. Yeah, I was so. going to say, the, the book wasn't scripture though. That's true. Uh, so in this letter, Paul's giving the practical advice to Timothy, uh, and Timothy would have been in Ephesus at this point. So, and that's a We've talked a lot about that church. This is probably where Timothy's pastoring. Uh, He begins with a warning against false teachers, which obviously has been a problem for a while, given the context of many of Paul's letters. Like Paul would leave and then false teachers would immediately come in. And so Paul's warning Timothy against that. Uh, And it's kind of, it's weird because Paul has an interesting group in mind here. Uh, He says, and this is starting in verse three. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Uh, assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it fully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient and the ungodly and the sinners and the unholy and the profane, for those who strike their fathers and uh, fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in according with the gospel of the glory of the of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Um, okay, so Paul, it's he's still talking about, and this is the main heresy that's coming up in the early church, and then he eventually switches to something else. Uh, but it's this idea that you have to follow the old covenant in order to become a Christian. Uh, but here he's kind of talking about it's. It seems like there's some people, and maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it seems like there's some people who. Uh, were saved within the church who are now going back to this. So it's not necessarily pressure from people who have always thought this, but it's kind of people being convinced of it as well. Uh, and then I love the way he, he lays it out where the law is not for people who are perfect. It's for people who are sinners. Um, spoilers. That's all of us. But, yes, <laughs> but the point he's saying is that the law is, is, the law is there to show us our sin and to show us that we need a savior. Um, one of my favorite ways I've heard it is that the law is the diagnosis and the gospel is the prognosis. Uh, so in other words, the law is telling you what's wrong and the gospel is telling you, here's how to fix it, or here's how Christ fixed it already. Uh, as Paul continues on with the conversation of the law, he reminds Timothy that Christ came to save sinners and that Paul was one of the worst sinners that there was. Uh, he also shows how he was saved in order to glorify God and serve as an example that no one is too far away from God. So in other words, yeah, it's kind of it's an easy example when someone says, I've done too, I've done too many terrible things. You can be like, well, Paul literally was killing Christians and then all of a sudden God saved him and he became a missionary. And it's like, oh, that's a good point. I guess maybe I haven't done like the worst things. So there you go. Uh, as in chapter two, Paul tells Timothy to make sure that he is praying for all people, including those who are in authority. Uh, this is a an important command. I think for us today, we pray for people that we disagree with politically and we're kind of like, oh, I don't really want to. God changed them. Yeah. Um, back then, when Paul gives his command, he's commanding Christians to pray for people who are actively oppressing them. So it's a very different command and it's, it reflects poorly on us today that we 
struggle to do this. Uh, when back then the, the command to pray for the command to pray for Caesar at this point is Nero and Nero of neckbeard fame is just, he's not the worst emperor, but it's a low bar. <laughs> it's true. Cause he's among the worst for sure. He's not a good guy. Um, and then he talks about how as Christians, we should be living in a godly and dignified manner so that as many people as possible will come to faith in Christ. Again, as our, our example should lead people to Christ. Uh, Paul then gives a list of rules for Christian worship as the gathered church, which probably gives us an idea of what the church was struggling with. Uh, so he talks about how men should be worshiping without arguing or quarreling with each other, uh, which I, I had a friend who said, uh, just remember every sign that exists exists because someone broke the rule. Uh, so Paul having to specify like, Hey guys, don't be fighting in the middle of worship probably means that that's what was actually going on. So you think it was during his youth ministry days? Maybe. There, just kidding. There you go. Uh, and they talked about how women should focus on good works over material things, or in other words, don't be, uh, don't be so concerned with, uh, how you look and the, and the, and, the, and those sort of things, but be focused on the inner, um, the, the inner workings of the spirit within your heart as well. Um, and he talks about how men, men and women needing to submit to the roles that God has for them and how men and women are different and God created us with different things um, and that we have to be okay with that. And then this one's a really interesting one, but that God can use the suffering of childbirth to strengthen the faith of women. Um, and so obviously as men, we don't have access to that. I have no idea what, what he <laughs> no, means. No idea what that feels like. That definitely was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Let's just be honest. There you go. Yeah. It's, it, this is, yeah, this is a really, it's a really difficult passage to interpret. Um, so I could be very wrong with this. The way I interpret it is in a lot of the epistles, what, what did the writers talk about? They talk about how God uses suffering to strengthen our relationship with him. Uh, and so as we go through trials, as we go through tribulations, it's a reminder that God can use that to strengthen them. Uh, I think what Paul is saying here is that uh, women who have children have that extra level of, it's it's a suffering that they go through, um, but to remind, to remind, it's a reminder that when it happens, God can use that also to strengthen your relationship with him. So, and, and that could also be said about uh, parenthood, which is not necessarily suffering in the same sense, but right, your life changes and all of a sudden, I, I think you Upon becoming a parent, I think you understand a little bit more about some of the language that God uses, particularly when he talks about uh, being father. All right. Well, Aaron's going to continue on with the book of 2 Timothy. But before he does, we would like to remind you all to leave us a five-star review on whatever app you're listening on, uh, particularly on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you're listening on either of those, that, those are the ones that kind of really help get the get the word out, help grow the, grow the community of people reading the Bible together. And on Apple Podcasts, you can actually leave a written review. And if you do, we'll read it on the air and we'll give you a shout out just because, you yeah. know, we like to give our listeners a shout out. There yeah. I'm, I'm going to say this. It's been a minute since we were able to read a review on Apple Podcasts. So if you have yet to do that, would you just do us the honor of taking a moment and filling it out for us? Uh, and I know on Spotify, we are currently sitting at like 286 five-star reviews. Uh, so we're pushing 300 already this year. So if you get a chance on Spotify and you want to be able to help us get to that 300 mark, That'd be a lot of fun, too, to see that hit this year. But uh, thanks for those who have left reviews, who have left ratings. We appreciate that. It helps continue to grow the community, like Evan has already said. And we are thankful for your engagement with us. Uh, we are continuing in First Timothy. We're actually going to wrap up First Timothy, hit the book of Titus, and hit Second Timothy to kind of wrap up Paul's epistles this week. Uh, so First Timothy, as we continue on, presents a standard uh, of someone who is an overseer, which we would modern terms say a pastor. Uh, or a deacon, which is more of a high-level leader within the, the church. Uh, we refer to them within the Grove Church as board members. Um, and so it provides a standard uh, of what it means to be an overseer, to be a board, uh, to be a deacon, <clears throat> excuse me, is 
well as those stipulations. So you're going to see that uh, in chapter three there. We're going to also see uh, where Paul is going to end this chapter with a simple exhortation, uh, as well as a personal note of wanting to be present with Timothy. Uh, and this is where I'm, I'm just to be honest with you, uh, you're going to see in First Timothy, Titus, and Philemon, which you which you have already seen, especially as a kind of the chapter, the books wind down in First Timothy into Titus into Second Timothy. Uh, it's kind of Paul coming to the end of his life, and and he sees the end, but he also wants to leave and pass the baton well. So you're going to see these personal moments and touches where, man, I wish I could be with you, Timothy. I miss you. Um, and so uh, you see that here at the end of chapter three, um, and he he mentions this may not happen. Uh, but I do want to be with you. And so he states in this moment a purpose uh, for what he uh, what he wants Timothy to know and how to live as part of God's family. Uh, he will anchor uh, Timothy back to the truth and the great mystery of godliness, which is the gospel. Uh, and then he has this beautiful expression of it and says this in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 to 16. It says, I write these things to you, hoping to come to you soon. But if I should be delayed... I have written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. And most certainly the mystery of godliness is great. And this is where he has like this poetic uh, statement that he breaks down in essence, communicating this is the gospel. This is the mystery of godliness is great. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world and taken up in glory. And so he has this really beautiful poetic moment where he, in essence, kind of breaks down the gospel in a very simple form and poetic structure. Uh, and, ch- and as he's encouraging Timothy, challenging Timothy, and, and re-anchoring back to the gospel. Uh, he can, And then we shift into chapter four, where Paul begins to refer to the last days, uh, where, where some will leave the faith because of deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Specifically, the things that they're believing and aligning with is the prohibition of marriage and abstaining from certain foods, uh, which challenges direct lies the saying, God, in essence, what God has created is good. This has already been things that have been navigated and communicated. And Paul is reiterating to Timothy that there are going to people that leave the faith because they believe that you shouldn't get married and they believe that you shouldn't eat certain foods, which is contrary to what God has done and God has established by saying there, I mean, it goes back to the conversation with Timothy or Peter when he has this vision uh, that we read about in the book of Acts. Uh, And so he, Paul is reminding Timothy, these things are not true. There are lies, manipulative, deceitful lies from the enemy and marriage is good. Food is good. Um, and he, in essence, implies to Timothy that we must keep that, the truth of these things as an anchor to our lives and everything. Um, chapter four, we continue to see Paul exhort Timothy to point out that it's good to point these truths out to brothers and sisters and to help them live regarding the truth rather than these myths. Uh, and then is challenged to train himself in godliness. Timothy's challenged to train himself in godliness and then compares it to the idea like training for the body is good and has some benefit. But spiritual training is good in every way, has eternal benefits, that there's no limitation to the benefit of spiritual training. And then at the end of chapter four, we see a fairly famous, I call it, exhortation to Timothy. And it says this uh, in chapter four, verse 11 to 17, and then also cheating into chapter five, verse one and two. I know, cheater. But it says this, it says, command and teach these things, which is what he was just referring to, anchor to truth, the things that are true, not the myths and the lies of demons and spiritual teach or false teachings, 
command and teach these things. And he says, don't let anyone despise your youth, but set an example for all believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, give your attention to public reading, exhortation, and teaching. So this is where he's admonishing Timothy. Hey, here's the things to remember. Continue to teach these things and command these things. Don't let anybody reject you. And the reality is we used to see this as a like a, a, talking about someone in their like youth. So we refer to, we take that word youth into modern terms where it's like youth is at adolescence, teenage years. But Timothy was in his thirties, most likely about this point. And so Paul is saying, don't let anybody look down on you because of your youth. In his thirties, he was still viewed as young and the audience and the context and the culture, because the when you started pushing 40 plus to 50, you had more clout, more status, more influence. And so Paul was saying, hey, Timothy, you're young, yes, but don't let anybody look down on you. Set the example, lead the way, and and create and, and uphold the standards so others can see you and understand the influence you carry. Um, and then he says, until I come, focus on public reading, the exhortation, focus on teaching. And then he says, don't neglect the gift that is in you. It, it was given to you through prophecy with the laying on of hands by the council of elders. Practice these things, be committed to them so that your progress may be evident to all. It says, pay close attention to your life and your teaching, preserve or persevere, not preserve, persevere in these things for in doing this, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. And then he says in chapter five, verse one through two, finishing up this section, it says, don't rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters with all purity. And I just love that he is encouraging Timothy. And that's one of the things that we have found as you read through Timothy, you'll see that Paul is continually trying to encourage, to strengthen, to build up, to uh, empower, to see Timothy walk in everything that he has, that he is the one who's been called, the one who's set apart for this church at this time. And you see that in this conversation, especially right here where Paul is very adamant and very clear about the exhortation to give Timothy in this moment. But he also says, hey, teach and command these things. Don't rebuke an older man, but exhort him as your father. Younger men as brothers, like perceive them not as as just regular audience members, but as fathers and brothers and mothers and sisters, because our approach would be a little softer, but at the same time, carry the same level of passion and concern for their eternal well-being, not just their momentary circumstantial well-being. So he says that to Timothy as he wraps up the section in the beginning of chapter five. Chapter five then continues to explain to Timothy, Paul does uh, the propriety of supporting widows. So he kind of starts creating a little bit of clarity on what it looks like to support widows back in this day. Uh, in essence, it's just saying those who are genuinely in need, uh, make sure that the families are taking care of the widows um, because they need to care for their own. Discipleship will happen as they continue to rec- recognize the reality of I need to care for my my family member who's a widow. Um, and it should caring for widows is something that should be strongly anchored to one's faith. It honors God when you care for your family in need. And so he continues to give direction about the widows and draws a very clear standard or line where he even refers to widows who are younger than 60. Don't be careful with them because they may come and take advantage and then get married and be provided for. But the, it, it, there's there's a really kind of interesting dynamic here at play where Paul is saying, in essence, drawing the line of like those who are genuinely in need and can't care for themselves versus those who could follow under the category of w- widow, but can actually have someone take care of them um, because of family or getting married again or things like that. So Paul explains that to Timothy. Um, and then he continues in chapter five, explain, explaining the honor due to those who are leading churches. This is where we find Paul explaining the rightness, if you can say it that way, of paying pastors and leaders in the church. Um, and Paul says this, not because he's necessarily received 
payment for preaching and teaching and launching churches, he has made it very clear throughout his letters to these different churches that, listen, I worked hard among you. I had a separate job. I didn't become a burden to you. But then he's kind of launching in this new era because of his reputation, because of the integrity. He's like, now listen, a workman is worthy of his hire. Uh, And he quotes uh, an Old Testament quote, but he also quotes Jesus there as well. Um, that he's just saying, like, pay pay these leaders, cover their leaders, so that they won't be without, so they can continue to provide and and lead and teach and pastor like they're called to. Um, we also find a, a way to handle any accusations against pastors in the New Testament, where you needed two or three witnesses, uh, and just because of the the propriety of making sure, because there was all sorts of false accusations, uh, we saw all, even all throughout the New Testament, even regarding Jesus. So he's saying, hey if there's any accusations, make sure there's two or three witnesses that can corroborate the same story and the same uh, accusation before you begin to discipline the pastor or the leader. Uh, And then afterwards, we get this passage in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 20 to 25. It says, publicly rebuke those who sin so that the rest will be afraid. In other words, he's trying to empower Timothy and encourage Timothy to lead boldly, to lead with the conviction, to lead the truth. He's saying, hey, publicly rebuke those who sin that the rest will, so that the rest will be afraid. Don't let anybody get away with anything because the standard is set. Hold closely to it. Uh, and then he says this, the, we get these like very clear admonishments from Paul to Timothy. I solemnly charge you before God in Christ Jesus and the elect angels to observe these things without prejudice, do, doing nothing without, or out of favoritism. And so he's just saying, hey, make sure you mind your heart and your motives, but rebuke intentionally and strategically, care well, love well, and lead and lead diligently in the midst of these things. It says, don't be too quick to appoint anyone as an elder uh, and don't share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Don't continue drinking only water, but use a little wine because your stomach and your freaking illness. So we get a little bit of insight here that Timothy had some physical ailments that we uh, that he was encouraged, hey, drink wine because the red wine will actually help with some of uh, the physical ailments of the time. So he says, don't just drink water, but drink some a little bit of wine so that your stomach can, you can have some relief from stomach issues and the frequent illnesses you have. Um, and so it was just one of those medicinal things. He, he, notice how he says a little wine. Don't, it doesn't say don't drink a bunch of wine. It says just drink a little wine to help you. Uh, so we, again, it's that moderation filter that we see Paul have already admonished and encouraged. Um, verse 24 tells us that some people's sins are obvious, preceding them to judgment, but the sins of others are surfaced later. Likewise, good works are obvious, and those are not obvious cannot be, remain hidden. Those are that are not obvious cannot be remain hidden. And so he's just e- explaining very clearly. It's almost like a like we already know, like a father figure stepping and saying, hey, here's a few quick hitters. Let me admonish you in these things. Don't forget this. People's sins are obvious. Make sure you're, uh, there's going to be judgment because of them, but other sins will surface later, so be aware of that. And then he also talks about good works there. And then we get to chapter six as Paul is wrapping up his first letter to Timothy. Uh, It's this quick exhortation about slaves. And again, just to reiterate, this doesn't condone slavery, but it actually, what it does is it elevates the conversation. Go back to Philemon, where Paul is very clearly talking about the proper response of Onesimus. Um, He's elevating the conversation to a gospel filter um, that in turn should influence us all today. Like the way we live our lives should be gospel centered, gospel filtered, not present day context, present day culture, present day uh, convenient versus inconvenience really is this picture intention of living a gospel filled and centered life elevates the conversations we navigate. Um, He talks about in chapter six, don't love money uh, and guard against greed. 
That's the culture of the times. That's what people will do. And then he has he has this uh, again this final kind of wrapping up exhortation before he gets um, to his conclusions of the first letter. It says, "But you, man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness." This is chapter six, verse eleven to sixteen. It says, "Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called about." which you have made a, a good confession, the presence of many witnesses and the presence of God who gives life to all and of Christ Jesus, who gave a good confession before Pontius Pilate. I charge you to keep this command without fault or failure until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. God will bring this about in his own time. He is blessed and only sovereign, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see to him be honor and eternal power Amen. And I love that it's like the last real big stamp of approval, real last big stamp of uh, admonishment and exhortation to Timothy. And then he has this exhortation to the rich where in essence, he's just saying, don't put your hope in your wealth, put your hope in God alone uh, and be rich in good works, not just your monetary value, but in rich and good works. And then concludes the letter with his final exhortation to Timothy and verse verses 20 to 21, it says, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding irreverent and empty speech and contradictions from what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some people have departed from the faith. Grace be with you all. And that's how he ends the first letter. There's not a, hey, so-and-so says hi, so-and-so says hi. You can see there's a very personal and deep conviction Paul has for Timothy in the letter, even as he wraps it up. That's a big hit that he has. And then we shift into the letter uh, for Titus that Paul writes, for Titus specifically. Um, and it's, again, the continue this pastoral letter theme. Uh, it's actually the only ones written to Paul's co-workers in the gospel. Everything else has been to a church, uh, but not written, not written to individuals except Timothy and Titus. And so you see this pastoral heart and this pastoral uh, conviction that Paul carries. Uh, and, but it does... Titus is going to focus on the idea of Christian living in response to the gospel. Um, Titus, just as an FYI, was on the island of Crete. He was left there. We'll see this um, in the very opening chapter of, of Titus. It's only three chapters, I believe. Um, but we see in chapter one that there's a greeting where Paul calls Titus, my true son in our common faith. This is similar to the, uh, the, the title and greeting he gives Timothy, uh, where he views both of these guys, Timothy and Titus, as his sons in the faith, where he was a part of their salvation journey. He was a part of their development and leadership journey, now their pastoral journey. Um, so he takes very personal ownership of these two individuals and their walks with Jesus. So he challenges them and exhorts them from such, and, and his, his plea is that they would remain faithful and loyal to the call of the gospel so that they would be shown at the last time, at the last days, shown at the end of their lives to be approved um, by God based upon the way they responded to the gospel. Um, we have also in chapter one, the reason for leaving Titus on Crete, uh, which is the idea they want, he wanted uh, Titus to set right what was left undone. Uh, and then he kind of dives into it where there's the standard of eldership, which is kind of similar to what Timothy was being said. He talks about silencing the rebellious who are full of empty words and deception, um, which again, kind of reveals a little bit of Timothy, even towards the end of Timothy's letter there, the first letter there. Uh, and then we get this description in chapter one, verse 10 through 16. It says, for there are many rebellious people full of empty talk and deception, especially those from the circumcision party. So he's referring to a very specific group of individuals. And this is who Titus has come to finish what has been left undone. 
Uh, and it says in verse 11, it is necessary to silence them. They are ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. One of their very own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons, which is a really fun highlight for Cretans back in that day. Yeah, shove it, Cretans. Yeah. Uh, so that way, if you ever want to offend someone, you can call them a Cretan, I guess. But uh, And he says, Paul says that this testimony is true. In other words, uh, some of their very own people have said this, and I'm going to tell you, this is true. This is really true and accurate of the Cretans. Um, for this reason, he says, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith and may not pay attention to the Jewish myths and commands of people who reject the truth. And he says, to the pure, everything is pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They claim to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. So this is the audience and this is the people that Titus was left to pastor and to lead. And Paul is exhorting Titus to lead clearly, to rebuke clearly, to help anchor their lives back to truth. Uh, And so in chapter two, we see Paul is exhorting Titus to teach with consistent sound teaching and then list the standards here for older women, older women, young men, young women, slaves. And then so he he sets a standard. Older men should be this. Women should do this. Young men, young women, slaves. This is how you respond. And again, go back to the very reminder of the very beginning of this uh, of this book. It's to help them live Christ-centered, gospel-centered lives in the midst of their culture, in the midst of Crete. Um, and so he's setting a standard here based upon the audience that Titus is there. He's saying, here's the standard set. And then he says, uh, this beautiful passage, and this is a passage I remember when I was dating my now wife, um, my wife, I guess my now wife, my wife. And this is one of the passages we would go back and try and memorize scripture together. And this is one of the ones that I, has always stuck with me in Titus 2, 11. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all, pe- all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great Savior, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, he gave himself up for us to redeem us all from lawlessness, to cleanse for him a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Proclaim these things, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And it's this why behind the standards. This is the standards for older women, older men, younger men, younger women, for slaves, this is why, because it's the grace of God that has appeared for, for all people, bringing salvation. And that's the foundation with which you live our lives and respond in the midst of our our current context. And that even translates to today. And I love that passage. It's one of those ones that I always have highlighted in every Bible that I own. It's one that I will always cling to. It's the grace of God that brings salvation to all men. And it teaches us to say no to godlessness and worldly lusts. Anyways, I just love that passage. I think it's really good. And it gives a very clear why behind it. And, and that's what ends chapter two. Uh, and then we get to chapter three, the final chapter of the book of Titus. And, and uh, Paul will then take a moment and explain what it looks like to live as Christians in a world that isn't Christ-centered. Um, and I think this is a really good chapter. I'm not going to do any reading from it today because I want you to actually read it and kind of draw out of it those those expectations, the, the clarity that Paul provides for Titus uh, and what it looks like, because it's very relatable to our world and life today. And again, it, it's kind of the pivot point is, is Titus 2, 11 to 15. Then it goes into chapter three. This is what it looks like to live uh, based upon the grace of God that brings salvation to all men, saying no to worldly passions and lusts. That This is what it looks like. That's what he's doing in chapter three. And then 
it ends with closing instructions for Titus. Uh, so he's kind of the last little bit of, of detail work here. Paul is going to be very clear here. Here's some expectations. Here's some instructions for you, Titus, as you uh, read the end of this letter. And that's where Titus ends. And then we jump into Second Timothy this week. There's a lot of books we read this week. There are a lot of short books, but there's a lot of books. So there's a lot of content. Uh, but Second Timothy 1 is a greeting. Uh, it follows Paul's a little bit more back, a little bit more. That's a bad sentence, sorry. Uh, but it goes back to kind of Paul's original letter format that we find in Ephesians and Galatians with the greeting, then a moment of thanksgiving. Uh, so we see this greeting to Timothy. Uh, and you're going to hear in this book specifically, like this finalness uh, to Paul's writing. Uh, and very strongly, you're going to find it here in Second Timothy. But you, you, you almost can get this sense of, this is probably the last letter I'm going to write. This is one going to you, Timothy, and here's the last things I would tell you. Um, he takes a moment and thanks and, and celebrates in Thanksgiving, remembering Timothy and his prayers and the steadfastness of his faith, and also the faithfulness of his grandmother, Lois, and then his mom, Eunice. So we get a little bit more of the personal touch and the knowing of Timothy in this, in this moment where you see um, this generational faithfulness, and Timothy is a product of that. Uh, and then we get at this moment in 2 Timothy 1, 6 through 12, and he says this to Timothy, therefore, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is in you through laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of one of power, love, and sound judgment. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Instead, share in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. This has now been made evident through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to, to light through the gospel. For this gospel, I was appointed a herald, apostle, teacher, and that is why I suffer these things. But I'm not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to guard what has been entrusted to me until that day. And you see this beautiful, beautiful exhortation and reminder, again, encouraging Timothy, uh, because no doubt Timothy is sensing the end as well, sensing the end of Paul, sensing the end of their their, their like father-sonness, if you will. But there's there's definitely got to be some things playing out here, but Timothy is still facing a, a very difficult culture in context, and Paul's continue to remind him to fan into flame, which is another translation, but it's, it, that's where we get the very beginning, rekindle the gift, uh, but really rekindle what God has established in you through the laying on of hands, fan that into flame, rekindle it, invest in it, spend time with it. Um, and Paul then ends chapter one by challenging, challenging Timothy to be loyal in faith um, as he wraps up the end of chapter one. He then starts chapter two with this call to be strong in grace, steadfast to the hope of the gospel. He uses a soldier analogy to communicate the high level of obedience and expectation, what it means to be committed, loyal, and faithful. So he uses that picture of a soldier to kind of paint um, uh, a, a better picture. I guess I guess I repeated myself, but to paint that better picture of what it looks like to be steadfast and be strong in the grace uh, given to him through the gospel. Uh, that's the that's all of chapter two. Then chapter three, we find Paul is going to explain the hardships he's facing, uh, but will come, but will in essence come to all at, at the end here. And I'm just going to read this section um, because you get you get a very vulnerable raw picture of Paul and what he's navigated the last 
season of his life. Um, but he says this, but know this, hard times will come in the last days. And so he starts off that way. Chapter three, verse one, know this, hard, ti- hard days will come, hard times will come in the last days. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the form of godliness, but denying its power. That is a very clear picture of what's happening and what's to come. Paul is very aware of culture and how culture is influencing, and he doesn't stop there, but he just creates a very clear list of what to expect in the last days. It will not be easier as a Christian from this moment on, Paul is saying hard times are going to come. We are in the last days before Christ's arrival. And so here's culturally what you can expect and and list those things. out. And I'll be honest with you, you can check every one of those off the list for, for today's culture. Uh, for 2023, coming into 2024, you can check these off because they're very relevant for us today. And Paul says, and I think it's important to understand like that he's not just talking about outside the faith believers or outside of the faith individuals, he's talking about believers in the faith too, that they're holding to a form of godliness, but denying its power. And they're denying its power and holding to the form of it because in, in the reality of their heart and their motivation, they check off these things in the list that Paul just gave. And then Paul says this in verse five, at the end of verse five, he says, avoid these people. And that says, don't associate with them because in essence, Paul is aware of if you associate with these individuals, you will become more influenced by them than you can influence them. So be mindful of that. Avoid them. Don't spend a ton of time. He's not saying let them go to hell. He's saying don't let them be major influences in your life. Don't spend your quality time and the bulk of your time in relationship. Spend time reaching these people and serving, but be surrounded by the right people who are going to encourage your faith, not diminish it. Uh, he continues on verse six and says, for among them are those who worm their way into households and deceive gullible women, overwhelmed by, overwhelmed by sins and led astray by a variety of passions, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of truth. Just as James and Jambres resisted Moses, so they also resist the truth. These are men who are corrupt in mind and worthless in regard to the faith. I want to I stop here. There's a reason why I put this part in too. Um, and, and it's not the first time they're mentioned. These names are mentioned, Janus and Jambres. Uh, we also see in verse nine, it says, they will not make further progress for their foolishness will be clear to all, as was the foolishness of Janus and Jambres. Janus and Jambres was never named in, in the Bible, in the, in the, in the, um, the, the Torah. It actually is something that Timothy would be familiar with because in Jewish history and tradition, it actually names the, the two different sorcerers that Moses was up against in the book of Exodus. And ironically, coincidentally, part of our question this at, at, in just a few moments actually refers back to some of these moments with Moses in the book of Exodus. So it's kind of a fun little, as I read through the notes and I put it all together, and I read the question, I was like, hey, even though it may have been from the book of Exodus, it still connects to this week's reading, which is kind of fun. But these are the two sorcerers of Pharaoh that were, in essence, pit against Moses to perform miracles or the miraculous or whatever in competition. Um but they're named because Jewish history is what attributes these names to those individuals back in the book of Exodus. So that's why they're named. That's why we have these names that are not in biblical history, but they're in Jewish history. Um, and so that's that's kind of a fun little connection back to uh, the old. But what Paul is saying here is just as they were exposed for their motivations, just as they were exposed for their corruption, so are going to be like those today who live in their foolishness. 
um, and they live disobedient lives just and will be exposed just like those two were back with Moses. Um, then he reinforces and exhorts Timothy in the in the final moments here of chapter three, where he says, "But you have followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance, along with persecutions and suffering that came to me in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra." What persecutions I endured, and yet the Lord rescued them or me from them all. In fact, all who live a godly life in Christ, Jesus will be persecuted. So that's not a very encouraging thing to say, but it's saying, hey, these things are coming. Uh, And so then we find moments in light of this that Paul will remind Timothy here in chapter three, wrapping up or leading into chapter four, that Timothy, he was reminding Timothy to live and preach what he has learned. Um, and we get this well-known passage after this, that all scripture is inspired by God is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And that's where chapter three ends is this exhortation, inspiration to remain anchored to scripture. And then we jump into chapter four and I'm going to be honest with you. Chapter four, we don't finish this week in this week's reading. We actually cheat into Monday, the following Monday, Oh my gosh. like three or four verses. And so I'm just going to cover all of it today uh, because three or four verses, we're just going to finish a book and call it good. You don't want to, you don't want to wrap up the letters of Paul randomly yeah. with a couple of Come sentences. on. Whoever put this reading plan together is just a joke. Uh, but we find in chapter four, these final exhortations and admonishments to Timothy. Um, and, and we see this at the very beginning of chapter four it says, I solemnly charge you before God in Christ Jesus who is going to judge the living and the dead. And because of his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, rebuke, correct, encourage with great patience and teaching. And I think that's important to understand what Paul is challenging. Timothy can also, I mean, when I was ordained, uh, this was part of the scripture that they spoke very clearly to me in in these moments of very significant spiritual moments of preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, rebuke, correct, encourage, and we oftentimes stop there, but we got to remember what Paul says with great pr- patience and teaching. Uh, so there's a very high diligence that we're called to in this regard, especially for those of us who are pastors. Um, so follow the same line as Paul's uh, exhortation to Timothy. Paul continues, says, for the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine. Sounds a little familiar, but according to their own desires, sounds familiar, will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. Again, sounds familiar today. They will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. Yeah, interesting. But as for you, exercise self-control in everything. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. And that's one of the exhortations that he gives. Then he reflects on and anticipates the end of his life where he refers to, I have been poured out like a drink offering. I have fought the good fight of faith. He says, I have finished the race. He says, I have kept the faith. And so he kind of is, he understands my life is almost done. I have done, completed the work that God set before me. I have accomplished what he said. I am, I'm remained faithful in the midst of hardship and I, I have done everything I've been asked. And then he says in the final instructions portion of this book and then this letter, he says, come to see me soon, Timothy. And, and I, I just want to read the verses nine through 18, because there's also some very real moments here um, to, to show you how kind of discouraged Paul is in the midst of this letter. Uh, he says this verse nine, make every effort to come to me soon. Because Demas has deserted me since he loved this present world and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. So Demas was one of the followers and supporters of Paul in his missionary journeys, but went to Thessalonica because he loved the world. He in essence compromised, gave up, stopped following faith in Christ, stopped living like, you know, in, in sacrificial obedience. He talks about Crescens going to Galatia. He talks about Titus and Dalmatia. There's reasons for those two to be there, but Demas is the one who deserted him. It says, only Luke is with me. And so all in this 
original, when Paul went to, and he was imprisoned, he had multiple individuals with him. So he wasn't as alone, but now he's feeling the, the loneliness that comes towards the end of his life. He's an old man writing this letter from prison. And he says, only Luke was with me. And then there's this beautiful reconciliatory moment uh, that is very subtle. It says, bring Mark with you, for he is useful to me in the ministry. Go all the way back to, to Acts. Yeah. And there was this massive rip of uh, relationship, of kingdom-mindedness. And God used that to actually propel the gospel even further to plant more churches. But there's this reconciliatory moment where he says, hey, when you come, Timothy, bring Mark with you. He's useful to me. Uh, he says, I've sent Tychicus to Ephesus. Um, he says, hey, when you come, would you bring the cloak I left in Troas with Carpus, as well as the scrolls, especially the parchments? In other words, he has more he wants to write and do before the end of his life. He talks about Alexander the coppersmith, his doing great harm. So he just kind of lays out these conversations and saying, hey, it's my life is coming to an end. I'm lonely. Come visit me. Everyone's left me. Either they're going to do the kingdom work or they've deserted me. Um, and he ends with this in verse 17 and 18. He says, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. So I might fully preach the word and all the Gentiles might hear. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. He, again, he talks about hardship, but anchors back to God's faithfulness. It says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil work and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And then at the end, which is, this would be technically Monday's reading. Uh, I, yeah, Monday's reading, or maybe Sunday's reading. Sorry, Sunday morning's reading. We see uh, verses 19 to 22, which is really his just closing greetings um, and carries like a final, hey, everyone says hi, greet so-and-so and greet so-and-so. They all say hi. Tell them I love them. Tell them it's been real and I'll see them in heaven one day. See you on My the other paraphrase. side. My <laughs> paraphrase. See you on this side. So, and that's where the book of Timothy, Second Timothy will end. And really Paul's writings is this is where the, the known writings of Paul, this is where it ends. And we're left with that at the end of the week. There you go. Well, that doesn't end our podcast. No, however, does, definitely does not. We are going to talk about what we learned today. Uh, for me, mine is really simple. It's just the idea that getting into what Paul was saying in Philippians, and James actually even touched on this a little bit as well, um, there should be something different about us as Christians. Uh, and so uh, one of my least favorite quotes is the, um, I forgot who it gets attributed to. I think it's St. Francis, but the idea of preach the gospel always when necessary, use words. Um, no, it's, it's necessary to use words. Like No one's going to get the gospel from just the way that we act. Um, but on the other side of that, people are going to wonder what is different. People are going to wonder why we act a certain way. As Christians, we should be so loving. We should be so ready to offer forgiveness. We should be so different from the world that people wonder what is different about us. And then we can actually preach the gospel. Um, and I, I love the way that in so many, as we wrap up Paul's letters, I think one of the underexplored themes that we talk about is how concerned Paul is with the reputation of the church, with the reputation of Christ, and how so many of his so many of his warnings toward the church are specifically about making sure that we present ourselves well to the rest of the world. So I think it's an important thing for us to remember. Yeah, I think it's really good. Um, and for me, I think because it's kind of that that uh, tone of Paul coming to the end of his life and it really exhorting, I just I felt the conviction of Paul exhorting me as a young pastor, because I'm not yet 40, um, maybe a couple of weeks from now I will be, but I'm not right now at the, at the time of this reading. But I do think there's something significant about Paul's understanding of eternity and Paul living in light of eternity very, very diligently, very, very um, uh, strictly, if I can say it that way. Um, but even his, the confidence he had and the fulfillment he had and the comfort he had 
and knowing God and, and giving everything. He poured everything out and served so faithfully to God. It's, it's that conviction and challenge for me that it, it's, I want to live like that too. I want to, I want to honor God with everything I am where nothing is mine and I don't hold ownership of much except uh, the cross. I want to hold that tightly. So um, I just think it was a beautiful exhortation that we see a beautiful moments that Paul is giving Timothy and Titus. Um, and it's this baton being passed. And so I feel that same conviction to carry that baton forward into the coming generations and in the coming years of, of church ministry and, and, and reaching the lost and discipling the found. And I think that's a really powerful picture for me as a, as a follower of Jesus today is to grab a hold of that baton faithfully and run with it as well. No, great thoughts. Uh, well, we did have some questions coming this week, so we're going to take a moment to answer those. Uh, this one's been our, our apologies. This has been on the docket for a while, but we're finally almost caught up as far as uh, getting to the getting to the backlog. Uh, so this is actually a series of questions. And so uh, the first one, or I guess they, they introduced it by saying, uh, I hate to beat a dead horse with a stick, but I'm struggling with Exodus. I wish I had started this back when you were currently going through it, listening to the podcast. I recognize that y'all are very educated uh, in these matters, which is why I use you as a resource. I hope that's okay. Uh, no, that's great. And then you know, feel free to grab other resources as well. So we've referenced like books a, a bunch of times as well. So it, it's helpful to learn. Uh, so yeah, this is someone who started off reading, started off listening to the podcast at the beginning of the year. So they're way back as far as where they're at. But uh, a couple of the questions they had. Uh, first one, the Pharaoh's magicians, how were they able to copy some of what Moses did? Um, I think there's two answers that are possible. Uh, one could be through demonic power. The other one could be through essentially what we'd call today, like an illusion or a magic trick. Um, I think I land probably more on the demonic power. I think there is some spiritual warfare that's going on in the book of Exodus. And so I don't have any problem saying that um, God allowed that to happen in that particular moment. That's how I would, that's how I do it. I don't, Aaron, I don't know if you have thoughts on that one. No, I, yeah, I, I would agree. I don't think there's, it, that's a hard one to really nail down, but. Uh, next question. This one is one I had no idea. I had to look it up. It's in two verses in the Bible, but what are the Urim and the Thummim? So you don't know what those are? It's a, I mean, I like, yeah, I don't know. I just never thought about it, I guess. That's so. funny. I read the question. I was like, oh, I know what those are. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. It's, a, it's, a, it's the stones they would use to cast lots. So when they cast lots for right. Jesus' clothing or they would cast lots for selecting Matthias, like it's, it's these two stones that they would use as part of establishing, confirming. I mean, it's not a magic eight ball, right? But it is this, okay, Lord, what, whatever this looks like. So that's what right. they would be. So in Exodus, there's uh they're, they're put onto the high priest's clothes. And then it seems to be, the, and, and there's a verse in Samuel that, Samuel that talks about it. And it seems to be, this is like Aaron said, it's a way to cast lots to get an answer from the Lord. Um, so if, if God is not specifically using the prophets or whatever to to give an answer, they can cast Umen and th- Urim and Thummim to, uh, to figure it out. And theoretically, we don't know for sure, but it seems like they were probably stones that had different colors. Maybe one yeah, was It's almost like dice is yeah. what it would feel like. Like it's a, it, it's a not so necessary six sided dice today, but it is that thing. And, and just to make like the, the easiest way that I would translate that to modern terms. Like when I went to, when I was applying for colleges, I had two colleges that I applied for both of which, cause I was pursuing ministry. I put them both in the mail at the same exact time. And I literally said, okay, God, whichever one comes back to me first is the one that I believe you're, Ooh. you're answering. And the crazy thing about it is they're, it's not necessarily a hard and fast rule because I actually went for the, I actually ended up going to Northwest, which was a different college, the second college that I applied to versus the first one, um, because I felt uneasy about it, but it is a, a way of, of 
asking for clarity and gaining peace and clarity from God in the midst of that. So it's not like voodoo or magic or whatever, but it is part of the process of daily petition. God invites us to daily petition. So it, it, it feels kind of weird to say, oh, they cast lots and that's how they determine. Like, no, like there was a very significant trust in the process of saying, God, we are looking for your direction. And this is part of the process. Yep. So there you go. Uh, next question. What are your thoughts on the Ark of the Covenant? I like it. It's a good arc. I don't know. Uh, like, uh, was in the, it was in Indiana Jones, right? No, yeah. I'm just kidding. I'm I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, the ark killed Nazis. Great, yeah. good, good for the ark. Um, I mean, I, I don't. I guess I don't know what this is specifically trying to get at. Yeah. I think uh, something interesting that I heard about the ark was that it's essentially set up to um, mimic the type of war, um, the war tent of Pharaoh. And so the idea that there would be in ancient Egypt, they also had something similar to cherubim um, and they were bowed down and they were worshiping. And then hmm. uh, uh, some type of representation of Pharaoh would be in the middle of it. So it's interesting that God had the Israelites or Yahweh had the Israelites design it in such a way that the cherubim are bowing to nothing because it's showing that he is the formless God. You don't make a hmm. graven image of, of, of Yahweh. So I thought that was kind of an interesting thing. Yeah. Um, I think it's lost. If maybe if that's, if that's what the question is getting at, I don't think it's, yeah, I don't think it's secretly around anywhere. I think it was probably destroyed at some point. I think God and his sovereignty allowed it to be destroyed. Um, similar to the bronze snake or the bronze serpent um, in the time of Hezekiah, although we know that, that Hezekiah himself destroyed it. Yeah. Um, but I think it's similar to the temple itself, actually, like that's something that God allowed to be constructed. And when it's time, when it's. Um, yeah. When it serves its purpose. Yeah. It's. It's done. That's what I would guess happened there. So I Yeah. Know. Well, I think, I mean, maybe again, it's kind of an open-ended question. So I don't know if there's a specific vein of thought in mind you had, but um, it was very symbolic and very meaningful. Like it was very true of God's presence going with his people into battle. It was a covering. It was a, um, a massive spiritual divine representation of a invisible God, a present, an omnipresent God. Um, that was not in tangible form. The Ark of the Covenant was something very significant that would, God would be with, it would, it, it's a tangible thing that God would be with his people. Um, and as they were journeying and so journeying to, towards the promised land and as they were, you know, conquering other nations, like this Ark was intended to be a sacred representation of God's covenant and promise. That's why the tablets of stone were put in it. That's why the, um, I believe that's why, you know, Moses' staff was put in it. Like there's, there's a reason for it, but it is a sign of covenant. It is a sign of you're my people. You own, like you hold this. So when it went with the Philistines, I believe it was the Philistines, um, they had like, there was these like tangible blessings and oh, it overwhelmed them. It's like, no, we got to get rid of this. Like um, their, their temple God would kept falling on its face. And so they, we got to get rid of this. Uh, but there is a very significant, powerful element to the Ark of the Covenant for the time that it was created for God establishing a people of his own. Um, so I do think it is a very, it's, it, I mean, I can't overuse the word maybe, but it is, it is a powerful representation of a formless, sovereign creator God uh, being with his people. And so I think that that's part of the, the significance of the Ark of the Covenant, especially in the Old Testament. Yeah. That's a great point. Uh, the final question is, as a wife and mom of two precious babies, I'm struggling with how God says he will lay the sins of the parents on the children and the grandchildren. So that's another verse in Exodus. Um, I think there's a couple different ways to understand that. And I think the one that I land on is not that God is laying the guilt necessarily, but he's laying the consequences of it. Um, 
And so when, and, and this, and this happens today, right? There's all the times that parents sin affects children because that's just the natural consequences of sin. It's not, it's not God saying this is, this, I'm holding this sin against you. It's God letting the natural course of the world take place. Um, and so when, so for instance, with the old covenant, which is where this is, this is what I was referencing, right? The idea of breaking the old covenant, of course, that's going to affect future generations. Um, and God can't just reset the idea of don't break covenant every time a new generation is born. Uh, and so eventually there does reach a point where so many of the generations of Israel have broken the old covenant that there's nothing that can be done. Yeah, And that's not God holding the sins of the fathers against the sins of the sons. That's saying, this is the promise I made to this nation. And, the con- and unfortunately, the consequences of your fathers are going to be visited against you as well. So that's how I would interpret it yeah. as well. I don't think it's necessarily God... Uh, not punishing the fathers and grandfathers and then punishing the children for it. I think it's just the natural consequences of sin and living in a broken world. Yeah. And I think I would agree with that. I think the other side to it too is it's old Testament and there is a, a stipulation there in the old Testament, but I'm not, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you can correct me, but I'm not sure if there is a new Testament reiteration of that statement from Exodus. I, no, I can't, not that I'm aware I can't of. recall off the top of my head, but at the end of the day, I think it also shows the significance of sin and specifically unrepentant, unconfessed sin that it does. There are such things today, even as generational curses, which is why it's so powerful and important that confession be a part of our regular rhythms of Christians today is to not allow habits and cycles and lifestyles of sin to be passed on from generation to generation, because there is a reality of that too. So I think you see the totality of sin, even in the statement in the Exodus is, is that it's not necessarily God's punishing, but there is a reality of sin and its consequences trickling on beyond just an individual. Sin is not a, I've sinned, so therefore I'm the only one impacted. No, when I sin and I don't confess and I don't return to, I don't respond with in great or respond to grace with humility, then it, then it, it still carries power and potency and impact beyond just me. And so I think there is also a very significant piece to, to understand the power of confession today, because at the end of the day, Christ is already I mean, Christ held sin to the cross, not just sin up to that present time, but all sin for all time. And, and so that that's the beauty of the gospel and the grace that we have today. Um, but you do see the implications and the impact of sin for generations and for, um, and it's not necessarily God's going to punish my children for sin I committed, but if I'm not confessing the sin I have today, that it could be perpetuated in my child's life if I'm not careful and understand that weight too. So no, that's a great point. All right, well, that wraps it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. As a reminder, we are a podcast of The Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of The Grove Church. You can find all of our other resources on our website, grove.church. I've heard that somewhere before. It's true, under the media tab. Uh, And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry that The Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website, grove.church. There's a give button in the upper right-hand corner. And hey, thank you all so much for listening. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.